A lot of you guys know one of our pastors, Lance Shoemake, sitting here on the front row, and you know that he's a man of many talents. And one of the things he does for us as a church is he puts together and manages our preaching calendar where there's a big spreadsheet that talks about who's going to preach on what day, what the passage is, who's doing the scripture reading, just kind of has, it goes out to like column AA on Excel, if you know what I mean. It's like, it's a very widespread, you have to scroll to see all the content on that thing. And one of the things he likes to do on there, which I feel like just doesn't get the amount of attention it should get, is he, he makes a little short description of each text, just kind of a little summary. And sometimes they're just pretty clear summaries, and sometimes, believe it or not, he, he kind of throws some humor into that. And just to give you a couple examples of that, um, he's really glad I'm doing this because he laments the fact that no one ever sees how funny that stuff is. So, so here, here, here you go. So there was one when we were talking about in Zechariah when that, that passage where Joshua was standing before the Lord in that vision and he's wearing like filthy clothes and then new clean clothes, high priestly garments are placed on him. And on that one, on the little description, Lance wrote, Joshua's new clothes are better than the emperor's. Yeah, it's just kind of funny. Not real funny, but kind of funny. So there was a, another one not too long ago, the passage, I think Scott preached it, where um, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'm torn between the two. I don't know which is better, to live or to die. And so Lance wrote, to live or not to live? This is Paul's question. Um, and then in this text, this morning's um, the verses we just read where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He just wrote that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Wait, what? Because <laughs> that's a little bit of an uncomfortable topic for us a lot of times. And I saw that description. I kind of chuckled. And then I scrolled over and then I saw Kai on it. And I thought, that's not so funny anymore. Um, so, so he decided to give that one to me. But um, it is a passage and a, an idea that we sometimes don't want to talk about. It makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Passages like this where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, and because it's a little uncomfortable, I mean, I, I got to be honest, this week, putting together a sermon, I, I felt the temptation to try to add some levity into this here and there and, you know, try to lighten it up and make it a little more funny. But then the the more I pressed into it, the more I was like, no, it's, it, it is uncomfortable and we are going to have to wrestle with it. But that's that's just simply being faithful to the text this morning um, of explaining God's word and what he is saying and how Paul is challenging us. Um, so in that vein of thought, our first consideration we're going to look at at the passage this morning is this. We should question our salvation. And when you see that on the screen and when you hear me say that, I don't know what that makes you think, but I would, I would venture to bet a lot of us would go, huh? Kind of the same response you had of, wait, what? We should question our salvation. That doesn't seem right. One of the things I want us to see is that this isn't the only place we see this idea taught. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Some of your translations in that passage may say, to make your calling and election sure. In another book that Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul said it this way, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So, again, I thought about, I even thought about softening this first point. We should question our salvation. Maybe that's a little too on the nose. Maybe that's going to make everyone feel a little uncomfortable. But then I thought, man, that's the exact reason we should confront this and lean into this 
for what it is. And I think too often in the church, we, whether we've been taught this or we just kind of assume this, we kind of have this idea that the idea of questioning whether or not I'm truly in Christ, whether or not I'm truly a Christian, the idea of questioning that is something we should run from, that if those thoughts creep up, we should shut them down, we should dismiss them, we should assume that that is the enemy speaking those thoughts into our head, when in actuality, Paul is encouraging us to ask that very question of ourselves in this text. And he even says to do so with fear and trembling, which, if you think about it, makes perfect sense because that's, that's a heavy question. And that work out your salvation. Think, think through whether or not you are saved. Or the Second Corinthians text when he says, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. That, he says to do so with fear and trembling because that's a heavy question. It's probably the heaviest, most important question one could ever ask of himself or herself. Am I really in Christ? Am I saved? Well, how do we work through that? What does it mean to ask ourselves those questions to wrestle with whether or not we are saved, our salvation? And I want to just give us a couple quick points on that. How do we determine these things? Um, Scripture gives us two ways. Number one is to ask of ourselves, is there faith? Right? I mean, that's one of the clearest marks of someone who is in the faith, who is saved, is someone who is believing in Jesus. Paul said, if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, he will be saved. That is, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. We see that in the book of Romans. Um, so they're asking the simple question, is there faith? And faith in the gospel. And the gospel that we believe is, is could be summarized like this, that Man in his sinful heart, all of us included, have rebelled against God. That God has established a, a certain way he wants us to live, and we have neglected to do that. And we've said we don't want to obey those rules. We don't want to follow that path. We'll do what we think makes us happy, and we will carve our own path. And in doing so, we've written a check that we can't cash. We've racked up a spiritual debt for ourselves that we have no ability in our own to pay. We can't make up for that rebellion and that transgression. We can't make it right. We can't make amends for that. But God, because of his loving kindness and graciousness, looked upon us in our predicament and said, you know what? They can't make a way to get back to me, but I'm going to make a way for them. So he sent his son Jesus to come live on this earth as a man, to die in our place, absorbing the penalty for our rebellion, that by belief in him, we could be reconciled to God and enjoy union in a right relationship with him again. So if we're believing and banking on that, not in our own works, but on what Christ has done, that is the faith that Scripture talks about is needed to be saved, to be a Christian. So if we see that faith in ourselves, that should give us confidence that we are indeed saved. And the second question we could ask ourselves is, is there fruit? Often the Bible uses this illustration of a tree and its fruit that, you know, a good tree will produce good fruit and a bad tree will produce bad fruit. So how do you know if you're truly in Christ? Well, what kind of fruit are you producing? Is your life producing things that are in line with the character of someone who follows Christ? Um, I had a, used to have a business that we started seven or eight years ago, and when we first started hiring people, I had no clue what I was doing. I, I still, even before we sold that, I still don't think I had any clue what I was doing. But definitely at the beginning. And 
we, we had some guys we were hiring, and, and I didn't know that there was this whole deal of like employee versus contractor. Some of you guys understand that if you're in finance or accounting or something like that. But you can basically hire people under two different classifications. Someone can be an employee, which means you pay their payroll tax, which is the part I didn't like. Um, so I was always looking to hire people as contractors. But, uh, you know, when I was asking people, you know, which way should I go with that, there wasn't like a clear zero to one answer. There was just basically, hey, th- imagine, this is the answer I always got from other business owners, from CPAs, just imagine two columns, right? In one column, these are characteristics of a contractor. And some of those things might be, number one, you don't, you don't set their schedule. You don't tell them when to show up at work. Um, number two, they use their own tools. A contractor typically would, you know, not rely on the employer for like a computer or, um, or tools, in my case, or things like that. Um, you could go to paid, paid by the work and not by the hour. There's some things like that that would check the box of contractor. Then there's some other things that if, if these things are true, that would lean towards employee. And it's a lot of the opposites, right? It's like if you're telling them when to show up and when not to show up, that, that's an employee, right? If they're using your tools, doing the work you've told them to do, and you're telling them not just to do the work but how to do it and giving them instructions, that leans towards employee, um, if, if that person is um, not able to work from home, but they have to show up at a certain time every day, that, that they're being treated as an employee. Um, and I think the Bible gives us a very similar picture to that in terms of how to evaluate our lives and the fruit of our lives and which of these two columns do I fall in. So I'm going to throw this passage up on the screen. This comes from Galatians chapter 5. Um, And Paul in Galatians 5 says, look, the deeds of the flesh are obvious. Like, it's really clear what it looks like for someone to to have the deeds of the flesh, for someone who doesn't know the Lord. And, And it's basically this, right? That someone who doesn't know the Lord, these are things that mark the life of someone who's definitely not indwelt with God's Spirit. Drunkenness, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, strife. Go down the list, right? And I didn't list all of them because of just screen space, but... These are the types of things that you would see in someone's life or your own life and go, yeah, that doesn't seem like someone who knows the Lord. Um, and Paul says that at the end of that list, he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a description of someone who maybe doesn't know the Lord and evidence thereof. But then he continues on in chapter 5 and he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast to that, kind of your other column, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified with the flesh its passions and desires. So Paul is basically giving us two columns, right? And saying, hey, which of these two do you check more boxes in? Because if you are in Christ, you should look a lot more like this and a lot less like this. So I want to talk now about what happens when we do that. What happens when we examine ourselves through the lens of is there faith and is there fruit? Um, and a couple observations on that. Number one, this should lead to confidence for most. If you look at the verses surrounding um, these verses in Philippians, what you're going to see is that Paul is encouraging them to question and work out their salvation in such a way that he's confident that that's going to lead them to a better place of having more confidence in 
their faith. That's what Paul's expectation is, is that the vast majority of them, through questioning their faith, would be led to a place of confidence. At the beginning of verse 12, he said, look, as you have always obeyed in my presence, now also in my absence. He's telling them, you've, you, you've obeyed, you've, you've done these things. Um, in the passage in, or sorry, before that, in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul said that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So Paul is writing this not in a place of like 50-50, we'll see where you land, but he's encouraging them towards finding their confidence in Christ by evaluating these things. Um, in 2 Corinthians, the passage where Paul said, examine yourself, if you look at the rest of the verse, here's what it says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Then he continues on, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? So Paul's admonition to do this is like, don't you know, don't you realize that there is fruit, that there is faith, that Christ is in you? But then there's this little clause at the end, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So in general, for the vast majority of the church, it's an encouragement. It's meant to lead them to a place of affirmation of their faith. But there's also the realization that there will be those sitting in a congregation during a worship service that maybe think they know the Lord, but perhaps actually do not, that would not meet these tests of the fruit of the Spirit and whether or not they're truly banking on the gospel and Jesus. Um, But his assumption is that for the most part, they would find encouragement. Um, How many of you guys uh, struggle with, like, leaving stuff when you go on a trip, like forgetting something? Anybody? Just me and Enoch? Okay, cool. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Um, Man, I struggle with that on a daily basis, y'all. I can't tell you how many times I'll leave my house, get to the office, start to, you know, walk inside and be like, I should probably get my computer. I mean, it's probably something I should have if I'm going to do any work today, right? Sometimes it's not the computer. Sometimes it's my lunch, right? Things like that. Um, Recently, I took the kids on a camping trip and had everything packed. It was all exciting. You know, you go camping, you need so much stuff. And we got about an hour and a half west headed to Caprock Canyon. And it's about an hour and a half from the house. And I realized I forgot to grab the camping stove, which is important because we did want to eat while we were there. I figured that would be, you know, something we would do was eat while we were camping. Um, so it's like, man, you know, you have that moment, it's like, would it be better to just go buy a new one, right? Like, than like spend the hour and a half and the gas money and that kind of stuff. Like, maybe I should just go get another one. Um, and at that time, you know, I decided to just, to just go back and get it. That was like three months ago. If that happened today, that stove was only like $1,000. So I would have saved that in gas, right? Um, very easily on that hour and a half trip. Um, but, you know, that's the kind of thing I always forget. Um, Emily has to check up on me in this kind of stuff. Sometimes when we, like, go to a game and we're in separate cars, we'll start driving back and we'll realize we didn't really check with each other to see who went where, you know, on the way back. And she'll call me and be like, hey, you, you got the girls, right? <laughs> like, we didn't leave the kids at the place, right? Um, but her asking me that is not, is not like she's 50-50 on it, right? Like, I don't know if you did or not. It's like, I'm like 99% sure this is the case, but... Let's just make sure. And I think that's kind of the, the intent of Paul's asking them to question their faith is that for the vast majority of them, it's from a place of confidence, not a place of being 50-50 and wondering whether or not that's the case. Another way to think of that might be, a, imagine like a, 
a manager of a boxer. There's a boxer like in the ring. He's about to fight. The manager's giving him his pep talk. And imagine that boxer has beat this opponent previously. And he might ask him, hey, you beat this guy before, right? It's not necessarily him questioning as much as it is an effort to affirm him in the reality of what's there. Um, And so Paul's questioning is mostly a path to encouragement and confidence. Um, Now, there are some who Paul's question will lead to a place of doubt. What I want you to see is that either way, that's still a good thing, right? It's, either way, it's very positive to, to consider whether or not we are in the faith that asking that question will, if anything, lead us to press further into God as we seek Him and where we stand before Him. Um, so regardless, the effects of that are going to be good. Second thing I want us to see from this text this morning is that we should trust God to work in us. That when we think about whether or not we're saved, we're not, we're not banking, especially when we consider the fruit, we're not banking on our ability to do those things, but we're trusting that God is able to work those things in and through us. Chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see that God is giving us not only the desire to follow him and press in the godliness, but also the ability to carry out. God works in you to will, for us to be able to will and to work for his good pleasure. That any work we do for him is a result of the work he has done in us. And that our confidence does not come from our ability to hold on to God in these things, but in his ability to hold on to us as his children. One of the um, resources I looked up in studying this text was a kind of a teaching that John Piper did on it, and he made the comment that this, this command to work out our salvation is sandwiched between a promise and power. So I'm going to look at that. In order to do so, I'm going to ask you in your Bibles to look up a little bit into chapter 2 of Philippians, um, where he says this, In verse 9, he says, or sorry, look in verse 8. He says, talking about Christ, he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look what happens as a result of Christ's humility. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul's walking us through this idea that because Jesus humbled himself and stooped so low and cast aside his own pleasure, his own wants, right, and humbled himself to serve others, God has then, as a result of that, as a reward for that, highly exalted him. Then he says in verse 12, that's where this big therefore comes from in verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's this, there's this promise that just as when Christ stooped low and, and lived a life of casting aside his flesh and just living for obedience to his Father, as a result of that love and that service and that humility, God exalted him, that God will also exalt us if we follow in those same steps. So that's the promise of what's to come if we will follow in like manner as Christ lived in humility, in love, and selflessness. 
But there's not just a promise. God also gives us the power to carry it out. And that's what he means when he says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you're not dependent on your own ability to be like Christ because that doesn't come very natural to us. And then the third observation I want us to see this morning is that we should work towards godliness. So we've talked about this idea in you know, point number two that our work towards godliness is really God working in us, but I don't want us to run past the fact that there is work to be done by us as well. That God's work in us causes us to work outwardly. That we are not passive agents in our own sanctification and becoming like Christ, where God is just doing it and we're just along for the ride, but we are working as part of that process. Um, as I was thinking about this and thinking about emphasis that the church places on different doctrines at different times, I thought about how different churches today than it was, say, 30 years ago. Now, you guys may not have been alive 30 years ago. Some of you may not have been in church 30 years ago. Um, but as someone who was, I can tell you that the, the, the emphasis that we placed on certain things has changed so much. I mean, just for a second, imagine what this congregation would look like 30 years ago. Just think of dress, right? I mean, some of you guys are wearing shorts, right? That wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. We certainly wouldn't have had a worship leader with his hat on backwards, right? Like, that would not have happened 30 years ago, right? Someone, some old man would have walked up and kicked that guy out the door, right? So I'm thankful for a lot of the change that's happened. It's been good. Um, but a lot of it isn't good and bad. It's just different, right? It's just emphasizing different things. And my dad is, I think of him as just an example of this. Um, if you were to ask my dad, he's just a funny guy, but... I've heard people ask him, hey, James, you know, how you doing? And a lot of times his default response is hard work and clean living. Hard work and clean living. But that, that was kind of the mentality back then, right? That, that, that's what we emphasized. That's what we talked about was, you know, what God wants from us is like hard work and clean living, right? And so a lot of the teaching, a lot of the emphasis was placed on that. I think one of the things we've seen in the last 10 or 20 years is, is there's been a shift from that, from God wants us to work hard and, and live clean, to coming back and, and kind of um, re-emphasizing the idea of the gospel being center in everything, right? That what God ultimately wants of us, that the ultimate message of Scripture is not God wants us to try harder to do better, Right? Like that we've, we've messed it up and now God wants us to clean ourselves up is not that. The ultimate message of Scripture is that, again, we've written a check we can't cash, is that we can't work hard and live clean enough to make up for our sin. But the good news of the gospel, right, is that Jesus has come, died in our place, paid the penalty we couldn't play. He made up for the things we could not make up for on our own. And so, most of what we talk about when we, when, we, when we preach, when we teach, when we think about God needs to be centered and rooted and grounded in the gospel, the idea that Jesus did what we could not do. And if we miss that, our sermons become nothing more than moralistic, legalistic pep talks on how to try harder and do better. And here's the thing. As thankful as I am for that shift... One of my concerns is that in that shift, we would no longer have a parking spot 
for all the commandments and the do's and don'ts that we do see in our Bibles. And that any sort of command in regards to how we should live would be dismissed and ignored as legalistic moralism. In other words, one of my fears is that we would be so scared of going back to a a legalistic, moralistic mentality that we'd have no parking spot for working towards godliness. I was uh, reading a a book by a guy named Kevin DeYoung who's kind of addressing this, this issue, this mindset that we see sometimes in the church today gone awry. And he said it this way, um, talking about his own experience. He said, passion for holiness makes you some kind of a weird holdover from a bygone era. As soon as you share a concern about swearing or about avoiding certain movies or about modesty or sexual impurity or self-control or just plain godliness, people look at you like you have a moralistic dab of cream cheese on your face. And I I do think there's a, there's a concern here um, that, for instance, in a small group setting, if someone, if someone shares a, something they're struggling with that we think, man, the only proper response to someone talking about a sin struggle is, is, is to assure them that they're forgiven in Christ and move on. When sometimes, maybe what might be needed in that situation is an admonition to, to work harder towards their battle against that sin. Um, we, uh, we talk a lot in church about how in small group settings, if someone comes out with a sin, right, and then that, that could take a lot of courage, and we've, we push that, we value that a lot at Crosspoint, that we don't want to just walk around acting like we're perfect and we don't have struggles, but in our small groups especially, we want to be forthcoming and, um, and, and vulnerable and transparent about the sin struggles we do have, and sometimes what that leads to is someone's been sitting on this this deep sin they struggled for a long time, and they, they finally kind of muster up the courage to get that out there and to share it. And in those situations, the last thing we want to do is meet that with a lecture and a list of how they need to do better at that, right? In those situations, we've got to have the discernment to go, man, what I need to do is just thank them for sharing that, let them know that I'm here, and make sure they know I'm standing beside them in this and not above them in this, right? That And come alongside them and say, thank you for being bold enough to share that. Man, we'd love to help walk with you as you try to flesh out what it looks like to battle that in your life. But there are also times when we have to have a category for what Paul would call admonishing the idol. Like I know in my own life there's been times where I've, I've come out with a sin to some people and that's the last thing I needed was a lecture. I just needed some, some encouragement for them to listen and just to kind of get it off my chest so we can start working through it. But there's other times when I've just had areas of idleness and I need someone to come along and give me a little nudge to work harder and press further in to that area, to fight harder against that bad habit or to put more effort towards starting a good habit. And I think it is possible that in our effort to protect each other from feelings of guilt and shame, that we might be coaching each other to ignore conviction from the Holy Spirit. So I want us to be careful with that in light of this admonishment Paul gives to work towards godliness. Because I think there are times when the solution really is simply to try harder and to work harder. That sometimes what we need most is not necessarily more epiphanies about forgiveness, but more effort towards godliness. 
that that is not an anti-gospel thing. Because the message of the gospel is not just that Christ has freed us from the condemning power of sin in an eternal sense, but that he has enabled us and commanded us to cast aside the entangling power of sin that wants to hold us down here and now. I love the way Jerry Bridges worded it. He said this, No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely, no one will attain it without effort on his own part. And so for my part, digging into this passage this week and this idea of Paul commanding us in light of what Christ has done and how he has humbled himself and God has exalted him and we're called to to look upon how he has lived in his selflessness and mirror that and live in like manner, that as people are seeking to do that, I'm encouraged to affirm and to celebrate and to celebrate those efforts and to not be so quick to anytime someone talks about um, their feelings of guilt or their feelings of needing to do better to just dismiss that as legalism and just say, hey, you're forgiven, it's okay, but to encourage them in the battle towards godliness and casting aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And so again, this, this, this passage is, is so simple. It's just, you know, two verses about work at your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to, to will and to work for his good pleasure, that God is doing something in us that's causing us to will and to work to live a life that's pleasing to him. So what I want to do is just end this sermon by reading to you what I wrote is just kind of a, a rewording and summary of, of the end of Philippians, um, the, of the end of the section from, from last week when it talks about Christ to these two verses this week. So I'm just going to read this and we'll wrap it up here. God has highly exalted Jesus above every other person. Why? Because of how he set aside his own interest and lived a life of humble obedience to his Father, seeking not to meet his own needs, but the needs of others. So much so, that he was willing to step down from heaven, casting aside endless glory and comforts and privilege, in order to bear our sin and die in our place. And now, for those who are in Christ, God wants us to live in like manner laying aside our own interests in order to serve and love our brethren. And just as surely as God exalted Christ for his life of humility and service, he will ultimately exalt those who devote their lives to loving and serving others. And as we seek to walk this path, which is so counter to our flesh and culture, know that God is working in us, giving us both the desire and the ability to walk in that manner as we work towards that end. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be encouraged in that, that we would be encouraged this morning to put forth great effort towards conforming our lives to that of Christ, not forgetting that it is you ultimately who is working that in us, um, but God, help us to not cast aside and dismiss these, these commands and these ideas that are all over our New Testament that we have a part to play in that, that we're called to, to work hard towards that. God, I pray that this would inform how we, 
how we speak into each other's lives, that we would know when to, when to just listen and be compassionate and not bite and devour one another, but also know when to admonish and push one another and encourage each other in a positive way towards godliness. I pray in Christ's name, amen.